0: So good to see you all here. If you're a guest with us, my name is Joel and I'm one of the pastors. I want to ask you to open to God's Word to the book of Micah. As we continue, we pick up from where we were two weeks ago in the middle of our series entitled Turn Twelve Men who spoke about 12 different ways to turn from the things that God knows will undo us to the things that we know that God knows will complete us. What does it look like to repent? The minor prophets give us 12 ways that that needs to happen. And while you're turning, let me just say thank you for a couple of things. Uh, One is, let's just get this out of the way. Don't y'all be bitter at me, but while y'all were suffering with rain and cold weather last week, I was at the beach. Just wanna say, I just just getting that out of the way. Is Pastor Joel at the beach? Yes, I was. So let's just get that out of. But y'all sent me there. You sent me there, you sent Pastor Dave there, you sent Charity there, and you sent our spouses, and this is the reason why. Because there are eight other churches led by church planters and led by bivocational pastors from Florida to Virginia to Kentucky to Michigan, really all over the United States, most all of them east of the Mississippi, but all over this place who needed some time to get away, to get rested, to get refreshed. And we had an opportunity. You sent us. So it was your opportunity through us to invest deeply in their ministries. And I just thank God for a church that's willing to do that. Yes, it did involve being on South Carolina coast. I'm not going to complain about that. Uh, but it was a wonderful, wonderful time. God's Spirit moved in mighty ways. It encouraged some people that needed encouragement. And so just thank you for your investment in those men and women uh, and allowing us to do that sort of thing. And thanks to our staff and to so many others who, who pulled off last Sunday without a hitch. We, Amy and I watched online and I thought, man, this will be the big test. And so your first worry is, can they do it without our top three staff members in the room? They did it, did they not? Will you thank them for me, for everything they did, and, and for the stuff that they did that you didn't see that wasn't on this stage? There was an inordinate amount uh, of pastoral care needs last week, and I want to thank them for doing that. So now I've got another worry. <laughs> do they need me? Right? Yeah, maybe they don't need yeah, I'm looking at Dave and Charity. Maybe they don't need us. I mean, they're, they're great, but I, I thank God for the leadership Uh, for the competence, and for most of all, just for the love for this church that your staff has for you. They love you. They pray for you. And I I thank God for that uh, as well. And so uh, we're in Micah today. I don't think there is a more fascinating or confusing human emotion than the one we're going to look at today, anger. All right. How many of y'all seen the Disney movie Inside Out? You got kids. How many? Go ahead. Even if you don't have kids. Yeah, I saw it. I'm not, a, I'm not ashamed to say I watch Disney movies. All right. It's the story of this twelve-year-old girl and the personified emotions. And there's all kinds of emotions going on inside of her. First off, because she's twelve, but secondly, because her parents have moved her to a different town, and she says so she got all these adjustments that she's got to deal with. And one of the things I love about that movie is the moral lesson that it teaches. And that lesson is this: being happy all the time in an imperfect world doesn't make sense. Okay, it just doesn't. And hopefully I'm not giving too much of it away for those of you who may see it later. But right at the end, it's not happiness, but actually sadness that saves the day. And you've got happy, who's always trying to pull sad aside. No, 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 you stay over there in your corner a minute. When in actuality, it was sadness that was needed to be applied. And so that film is an accurate reflection of human emotion and the fact that all of our emotions are central essential, if you will, to what makes us human. But the biggest enigma in the whole thing was anger. He's right there in front. I loved anger. He was funny. I think that was the intent. I think it was the intent, but I laughed anyway. He was portrayed in the voiceover by comedian Louis Black, so that made it funnier. And nobody, none of the other characters, knew what to make of anger in this film. And and what's interesting is when the Scriptures teach us about anger, it actually teaches us something very similar. I know Disney doesn't get everything right, but they got this one right. Because if you look at, at what they're teaching about human emotion, you're like, this matches up with what the Scriptures teach us about anger, that it's a volatile emotion. It's not inherently sinful. But it can, more quickly than any other emotion, lead us to sin. Be angry, but do not sin. That's what the Scriptures tell us. And some of us, really I think it's probably safe to say, all of us at some point in our lives have been victims of someone else's unjust anger toward us. And all of us, probably at some point in our lives, have been the perpetrators of unjust anger towards somebody else. Growing up, that mystified me. In fact, I, I just, it, it puzzled me some of the things that made my father angry. For example, we would go on a family vacation in our 1979 Volare Plymouth station wagon. Yeah, that's how old I am. And I'm sitting in the back seat, and I'm right behind my dad. And I'm a kid, so I'm, I'm just kind of, you know. Doing what kids do when they see that the old men are, are like, uh-uh, no. They know where this is going, right? On, on occasion, one of those feet would land right behind my dad's seat. And my dad, like, became demon-possessed. <laughs> like, he would turn around, and his face would turn red, and he would just kicking him, and I thought, what is the deal? 20 years later, I'm driving a 2002 Jeep Liberty, and I know the deal because I'm doing the same thing to my kids. Quit kicking the back of my seat because their legs are getting longer, right? And so there's this anger that kind of comes out. There's this, there's this mystique that, that sort of surrounds anger, and it gets more in, intense when we consider this fact. God gets angry as well. We've been in a series called Turn, we're moving through these minor prophets, and one of the things I've been stressing, is because it's one of the things that I think the prophets stress, is that the call to repentance is, is not driven by God's hatred for you. It's not even driven by his wrath against you. It's the call to repentance driven by his loving, gracious kindness. It's his wake-up warning to us and his invitation that's simply saying, come back to me, but, but we already saw in all the other prophets really, but Obadiah specifically, that these calls to turn are not separated from his anger. And the call of the prophecy of Micah sees this anger deeper and more meaningful than perhaps in any other of the minor prophets. So we're going to have to struggle with this a little bit today. The anger of the Lord, it's kind of funny, even progressive biblical scholars are finding this hard to avoid when they come to Micah. I mean, the whole kind of school of thought around classical theological liberalism emerged in the late 18th, early 19th century was to kind of remove those attributes from God. I'm not sure what they were after. Maybe they just wanted a sweet old man on a cloud. I'm not not sure. But I read one such theologian in preparation for this message, and he said, when you get to Micah, this issue is absolutely unavoidable. God is obviously angry. And then he said this, and it blew my mind for a liberal theologian. Too often, the church has not provided an opportunity for its people to think about this issue. The book of Micah gives one an occasion to reflect upon God's wrath. So we struggle with this. But as we struggle, we need to do it with this in mind. Righteous anger when it comes and when it's right and when it's reflective of the nature of God is not only not the opposite of love, it's a reflection of God's love for you. God's righteous anger towards you and towards me is a reflection, it's one facet on the diamond of his marvelous, inexhaustible love for us. And if you don't get that, you've never been a parent who has at one and the same time wanted to wrap your kids in your arms in a way that is inescapable specifically so you could murder them, right? We've all been there, right? I love you. Why did you do that? I'm going to kill you. Right, but here's the difference. Here's the difference. When God feels anger, he feels it perfectly. When God expresses anger, he expresses it righteously. And from this prophecy, we see he also uses those perfect, righteous expressions as a tool to call the people he loves back to himself. And so the overall theme here is that God is at one and the same time, strange as it may sound, the judge who scatters his people for their sins and the shepherd king who because of his covenant faithfulness gathers and protects and forgives his people. Now Micah's from a place called Moresheth. It's 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem. It's Podunk basically. It makes Shepherdstown look like a metropolis. And it's a small place, though, connected to a big place because, again, it's connected to Jerusalem. It's kind of like us. I describe us to people around the country like, well, we're in a small place connected to a big place. It's Shepherdstown, but it's connected to, quite literally, the most powerful city in the world. Micah's kind of like that, and in fact, he preaches at roughly the same time as Isaiah. And so Isaiah is preaching in the city centers. Micah is preaching out in Moresheth and the, the kind of rural areas around Jerusalem to the extent that Old Testament scholars for roughly the last 100 years have referred to this man as the country preacher. And at this point, Israel has been split into two kingdoms. You've got uh, Israel in the north, you have Judah in the south, where Micah is living. And so by this time, what's happening in the nation is that there's been a bit of economic cronyism. I mean, we wouldn't know anything about that in our day, but it had enveloped both kingdoms and it had resulted in abuse of the average citizen, but more specifically, abuse of the poorest of the poor. And the moral corruption of those perpetuating the system becomes obvious. And so Micah's taking this on directly. He does it structurally through three separate discourses that we're going to find as we summarize this prophecy together. Uh, And so to understand what God is saying to you and me in 2023, we need to first, like always with the scripture, understand what he was saying through his prophet to the people in the eighth century BC. So let's cover kind of in brief these three discourses together, and then we're going to cover some lessons that you and I can learn on how to turn from wrath to forgiveness. We're going to start with discourse one, This is judgment on Samaria and Judah. Chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morasheth, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, when when he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem, hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord be a witness against you the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth and the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. Now this is the prophet speaking to his countrymen out in the country. Does this sound angry to you? This sounds pretty angry. And they may wonder, what's up with that guy? Well, he is speaking the words of God, and he is doing so while simultaneously sharing the anger of God. Some of us have been wrongly taught growing up or in a particular tradition that, that a Christian isn't supposed to get angry. We're not supposed to get mad at brokenness of the world. We're not supposed to get angry at sin. We're not supposed to get angry at injustice that was done to you or to, or to someone else. And that's, that's been particularly harmful, by the way, when the church has historically spoken about abuse. Not long ago, I heard this horror story about a sexual abuse survivor. Whose pastor told her, well, you just need to get together with your abuser and you all just need to hug it out. And as, not, I mean, I'm reacting to that, not as a pastor, but as a daddy. I'm like, I'll hug him out. (laughs) Boa constrictor cut his oxygen supply off. You're like, preacher, that's ugly. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. That's unrighteous anger. I get it, I get it. But here's the thing, <laughs> we're supposed to forgive, but for what? That, that's the question, right? We used to need to be, see, forgive for what? If we're not willing to name, including the perpetrator, you're not willing to name and describe the depths of what needs forgiveness and then deal with that in a righteous and just way, then we're not forgiving anybody. We're just ignoring their sin. That's all we're doing. Too often, in way too many corners of the church, there's a cheap grace that abounds where just forgive them is code for just ignore what they did. Just sweep it under the rug. Brothers and sisters, that doesn't help victims and it doesn't help perpetrators who will go to hell if it's not dealt with in a righteous way. These are the things that we're talking about. This is what Micah's talking about. You've got to name the thing. And what we learn from here. Even from the prophet's tone, it is never wrong. In fact, just the opposite. It is imperative that you and I be angry when God is angry, and that we be angry at the same things that God is angry at. So, what's He angry about? See, that's the other. Because some of y'all might be just kind of grumpy old curmudgeons. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the stuff that makes you mad ain't the stuff that make God mad and you need to get over yourself, right? Being angry about what God gets angry about means we explore. What does the text tell us? What's making him angry? Well, all of this chapter one, verse five says is for the transgression of Jacob. And there are two sins mentioned here. Idolatry is the first. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. And then in chapter two, verses one and two, we see that oppression is the result of that idolatry. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds from the time they get up, basically, until the time they go to bed. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man... And his inheritance. In other words, God's saying, there are people that I have given money and authority. See, in America, we have this, this tendency to go, well, I did this, I did that, I worked hard, I've had some lucky breaks, and I'm thankful and I've been blessed in ways that maybe others haven't been. But basically, I did this. And when when it comes to our relationship with God, we gotta knock that off. Because the overall tone of the scriptures is just the opposite the Lord would speak back to you and say, yeah, you, 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 you have really made some wise decisions with that brain I gave you. You have really invested your money well that I gave you. You have worked incredibly hard with the good health and vitality that I provided you. You have worked hard. You have built something. You have, but basically, I have given you this, every good, and perfect gift comes down from the father of life. i tell you, if we get a dose of that, we'd have the humility we needed to maybe survive as a civilization. But that's not the point of my sermon. When Jesus said, you cannot worship God and money, he was simply echoing people like Micah. That's it. And it is likely what's going on in this oppression that this isn't some God they fashioned out of silver and gold. It's just silver and gold that they're worshiping. When a warning comes this often in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God's calling us to pay attention to it. I think that's especially true in a day, guys, when we like to make heroes out of people simply because they got a lot of money. Okay, That's a huge temptation to gauge the rightness or even the righteousness of someone based upon how successful they are.
1: Oh, Elon, he's the man.
0: Why? Well, because he's rich. Okay. Well, so was Hugh Hefner. you going to call him the man? Like what? Really? We're going to gauge him? Well, he's, he's done it. Yeah. Look, he's a brilliant guy. I mean, we just... We just saw the Starlink the other night at the bay, just watched it roll across the sky, and I went, oh, Elon did that. I mean, I mean, even I'm impressed, right? But when you go to venerate somebody simply because they got a lot of money, or simply because they went, well, have they've, they've got doing this. The moment we begin assigning levels of holiness or righteousness or rightness based solely on material possessions, that's the moment Micah tells us all of society begins to move toward oppression. And that's not the kind of society he calls followers of Jesus to build. Pastor, are are you dunking on rich people? No, I'm not. That would be poverty gospel. All right, And there's a version of that as well. And it's the same sin in the opposite direction. Assigning motive, assigning rightness or righteousness based on what someone doesn't have in their wallet or what someone does have in their wallet. Scripture will tell you there are righteous and unrighteous rich. There are righteous and unrighteous poor. But we see this here. You know, why are you, why are you looking up to that guy? Well, because he's rich. Well, that's prosperity gospel. If you want to go to hell, believe the prosperity gospel. Because that's what it tells you. Jesus died so that you can have everything you ever wanted, live your best life now, do all the things you want to do, have all the money you want to have, live in perfect health, live in perfect blessing. Just, you know, that stuff's all about you, right? Everything is indexed to you. The Holy Spirit's job is not to point to you. It's to point to Jesus. I feel like I'm doing some correction here that might need to happen in some hearts of people who watch clowns preach about you being rich, preach about you being successful, preach about you winning the Super Bowl, preach about you winning the Nextel Cup or whatever it is. You come to Jesus to get Jesus. You come to Jesus because you are lost in your sins and you need a bloody sacrifice and an empty tomb. That's the only solution you have. That's the gospel. Let's not lose the gospel because we're judging the rightness or the wrongness on somebody based on their material possessions. All of this is happening in the 8th century B.C. as well, and it breaks the prophet's heart for this. He says in verse 8, I will lament and wail, I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. See, he's not not doing this because he hates the people of Judah and Israel. He's brokenhearted. This is his home. And these are his people. And when you love people, you tell them the truth. You tell them the truth. God is angry as is the prophet because he knows just how such foolish assumptions will end. If you've ever been frustrated with a a rebellious kid, it's it's out of that deep sense of love and frustration because you know, I know they keep making these dumb decisions. They keep doing these sinful things and this will be the end. That's your heavenly father. Saying to you in this context, you better better watch the focus on money. You better watch the the clamoring for power. You you better watch that stuff because judgment is coming on all of it. That then leads us to the second discourse, which is a discourse of hope and comfort. Now, it doesn't sound that way when it first comes out. Let's look at it together. Chapter 3, verse 1. And I said, hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off of them and break their bones in pieces to chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron, then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. (laughs) Some of you are listening to that and going, that doesn't sound very comforting. Well, you're reading, first off, exactly what it sounds like you're reading. This is cannibalistic language. God is looking at their abuse of power, and he's saying, this is what I see. You are literally consuming your brothers and sisters in humanity. The abuse of power is going to be addressed. Justice is coming. You're like, well, where's the comfort? Well, it's in that, because there is no hope, there is no comfort, there is no peace without justice. Some of you know this better than I do. You know it better than your brothers and sisters in this room do. Because I've heard your stories. A relative was murdered. A child was harmed. A a drunk driver took the life of somebody that you love. Somebody took advantage of you and the law protected them and not you. You would know better than anybody else what the prophet says here is true. Justice is required before peace. And we're not talking about you just forgiving and letting up. We're talking about the whole concept of shalom, living in complete equanimity. That can't happen worldwide until justice is done and here's the fuller picture while you're thinking about that other person all of us have a judgment day coming I've got one coming you've got one coming and before you think about those other people and the way you've been victimized you got to think about your own because we are not merely victims we are also perpetrators and we can't play the tit-for-tat about who's worse. I'm going to get to that in just a minute. There's a lot of that going on in our culture. But the idea here is all of us have a judgment day coming. Justice is the only way the world will be put back together and set right again. And so the hope that Micah describes here is rooted in the Lord's continued discipline of his people. So there's judgment, and then there's hope and comfort encased within that coming judgment. And then finally, the third discourse, which is, is pardon. Now, here's where we get the softer language. Chapter 7, beginning in verse 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever. All right? Yeah, yeah. He, he doesn't do it. Because he delights in steadfast love, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So here's the process. God's anger leads him to correct his people. That correction then leads to forgiveness. That, Forgiveness then leads to full pardon, and then that pardon leads to restoration. But here's what the prophet is teaching us. The process involved in granting pardon is not cheap. The immoral leader sometimes needs to still be set aside or removed. The one addicted to substances that are killing him, whether it's cocaine or crack or heroin or pornography, which does effectively the same thing to your brain, neurochemically, needs somebody to get up in their face. The criminal needs to be locked up. You did that? Yeah, okay, well, we got to call the police. I thought you were my pastor. I am your pastor. I thought this was a church. We are a church. We're going to love you. We'll serve you communion in prison. We'll come to you. You abused a child. You did did, that. No, no, there's no way. There's no way. We're glossing this over, sweeping this under the rug. Because the church, alongside the magistrate, especially in some criminal cases, is to be an agent of justice. And when we're not, God's judgment comes on everybody, not just the perpetrator, everybody that's complicit in it. Because he don't mess around when it comes to the vulnerable, in case you haven't noticed that already, from the minor prophets. And so it's not cheap, all right? So somebody somebody sins deeply, and, and I've learned to tell if they're truly repentant. Jesus said it's out of the heart that the mouth speaks, so the language you use is indicative of what's going on down here. I can't see in your heart the way Jesus can we can tell a whole lot by your speech, by your tone, by the way things come out. This is the teaching of Jesus. And if they're asking questions like, how much longer am I going to have to pay for this? When are they finally just going to forgive and stop holding this over my head? You are not dealing with a repentant person. You're dealing with somebody who blame shifts. Yeah, I did it. So when are you going to forgive? That's the shift of the blame from me to you. And then the blame shifting turns into what we call gaslighting. I can't believe they aren't forgiving me. Next thing you know, the perpetrator has presented himself or herself as the victim. You know that's the same kind of stuff the devil did in the Garden of Eden? You are using the mind of Satan when you do that stuff. And God's calling that out, you know. You broke the bones, and now you want somebody else to wear crutches for it. Broken bones take a lot more time to heal than they do to break. Y'all you, you know that, right? Some of us know that from experience. That, and and also that if you cut that short, you'll pay for it. When I was 27 years old, I slipped on the ice, and and it's funny. I was a black I was a black diamond skier when this happened, and and so I'm walking around on crutches, and somebody just assumed that, oh, did you get that on the ski slope? And that, you know, that underbelly side of me was like, I just wanted to say, yeah, yeah, but no. Actually, no, I was walking across a parking lot and I did this, but I hyperextended my ankle and I jumped back on it with my full weight four weeks earlier than the doctors told me it would be safe to do that because I was 27 and invincible. All right. So that's been 24 years ago. This morning I had a good morning. I got out of bed, everything was normal, but but, but I I typically when I if I know I have to get up say at 6:30, I get up at 6:25. You know why? Because some mornings and I never know when it's going to happen, it's not indexed to the weather, it's not I'll get out of bed and my first 5 minutes are spent doing this. Because that ankle still swells. 24 years later because I did not give it appropriate time to heal, because I did not follow the instructions of those who knew better than me. Some of you are like that spiritually. Your life is one hobble right after another, and it is because you are walking on the broken bones of cheap grace. And Micah is telling you, you need to repent. Not say, I'm sorry. That's not repentance. I'm sorry. Then you keep doing the same crap over and over again. Turn. Come to me. Quit hobbling around. Quit doing the same stuff. Quit with the same dysfunction and come out from it. Stop that porn addiction. I can't stop. You're not doing it right now. Just keep that going. I know it's more difficult than that. I get how hard it is. I get the whole prefrontal cortex, what it's doing to your brain and all that. Yeah. I can't stop. I keep doing this. Well, this is just the way I am. That's a denial of the power of the gospel. The Lord Jesus tells you, you can in the power of the Holy Spirit. Outside of the Holy Spirit, I can't even walk from here to that door without going to hell. That is the measure of my depravity. But in the Lord Jesus... And I mean, Again, some of you, it's instant deliverance. We praise God when that happens. For some of you, it's a struggle that lasts your entire life, and God leverages that struggle for your entire life to make you more like Jesus until you see Jesus. That's the hope of the gospel. But if you keep walking around on broken bones, you need to let the Lord's loving anger expressed through Micah, wake you up, graciously call you. There is, there is judgment here, but there is comfort and hope. And ultimately there is full pardon for all of this, right? There's full pardon for it. So here are the three lessons we learn from Micah, from the people he preached to. All right. Lesson number one is this, stop trying to hold God hostage, Stop trying to hold him hostage. Chapter 3, verse 11. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. In other words, they're doing all this evil stuff, yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. I had a buddy named Daniel that I grew up with and one of the things that my wife and I still laugh about all these years later is Daniel would get me in trouble. Well, there's some debate about which one of us would get the other one in trouble. But, but Daniel, was, and it wasn't, it was, Daniel was a great guy, I loved Jesus, just had a lead foot, didn't really pay attention to signs like no parking here or, you know, no driving through the National Forest, you know, that kind of stuff. But I always heard this from my buddy Daniel, nothing's going to happen. Anybody else have a buddy like that? Nothing's that's what they're saying. it's okay. Well, here was the assumption. We're Israel. We're God's chosen people. We're the legacy of David, the legacy of Abraham. It was a false sense of security. They're they're thinking, God has to withhold judgment on us. Otherwise, he'll break his promise. There is nothing so utterly ridiculous on planet Earth as for a created being to think they've got their creator over a barrel. But that's what's happening here. But a lot of people do that today. Look at the money I give. Look at how talented I am. Look at how how many people respond when I preach. God needs me. (laughs) That's funny. I don't care who you are. God needs me. Meanwhile, judgment's coming. And it is just as sure as that seat you're sitting in. And there's nothing you can do to stop it. No matter how much you delude yourselves into thinking otherwise, he said to Judah, I can keep my promises to Abraham without you. In fact, he did. Well, that's that's another, that's a larger part of the biblical narrative. As long as you play this futile game, you remain unhealed because there ain't nothing you have that he needs because everything you have already belongs to him anyway. Stop playing games and repent. Here's lesson number two. Prioritize his kingdom over personal or national narratives. We get a glimpse of this in chapter 7, verse 13. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants, the fruit of their deeds. All right? This is is what's coming. They thought we're Israel. God will approve. God's got this agenda. He needs us to get the agenda accomplished. See, we live in that same kind of world today. Only today we call it whataboutism. All right? Whatever tribe you belong to, whatever political party you belong to, whatever denomination you belong to, what, what, they, something happens and it's wicked, and your, your, your immediate response is to diminish and deflect. It wasn't that bad, and it's better than the other guy. When somebody does something wicked, it doesn't matter if there's an elephant or a donkey button they're wearing. It's wicked, and God's people ought to say so. And the more we keep this tit-for-tat nonsense going, like two eight-year-olds, that's what we are. We're a nation of 340 million eight-year-olds. Have you noticed that? Well, he started it. Well, she did this. Well, she did that. When something's wicked, call it wicked. Wicked. It's wicked to treat immigrants the way this country does. It's wicked to mutilate the bodies of prepubescent children under the guise of affirming care. When we see something that's wicked, we call it wicked. We put a period at the end of that sentence and we rest in the truth, not in the tribe. That's what God's calling us to do here. Don't ever be afraid to simply stand on the truth. God's promise in the very next verse, it is that if you do that, he will shepherd his people. Relish his forgiveness. This is the third lesson we get. Verse 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity? Mercy is never far from judgment. That's the good news. That's the good news. Restoration is never far from condemnation. And here's the best part. Every bit of this is rooted in something else that Micah predicts. This takes us back to chapter five. He says this in verse two. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Yeah, y'all, y'all worried about the national security and the national identity and the national destiny and the national. Listen. It, Every bit of that's wrapped up in Messiah, and he ain't here yet. So stand in my truth and wait on him. Now, we're not doing that for the first coming, but we are for the second. So the message is the same. Stand in my truth, which is immovable, and wait on him. Micah is a prophet from a small place connected to a big place. But he predicts here someone else who will come from another small place that is connected to an infinite place. And the pardon, the forgiveness, the restoration, the resetting of the world that he will bring with him will be just as infinite and unstoppable and eternal. Listen, once you have allowed God's wrath to wake you up, once you've traveled the hard path of repentance... This is the reality you get to live in forever, forever. And we know that for this reason. God's anger is righteous. I've gotten mad before and it's been completely justified. I've gotten mad before and it's been completely unjustified. And the same thing is true of all of you. And if you've got a spouse that you listen to, they have calmed you down on occasion and told you, get off your high horse. This ain't what you think it is. I know you think it's you against the world. Believe me, it's just you. We all need to hear that sometimes. God never needs to hear that. When he gets angry, it's perfect, it is expressed righteously. And what that means in relation to us is his anger is not toxic, it's healthy, it's not unpredictable. You don't have to walk around on, on eggshells when you're in the presence of God. You don't have to wonder what's gonna set him off. He's already told you what sets him off. He has told you. It's, it's amazing to me the number of people that'll come to me and they, they, they've lived in fear sometimes for decades. Well, I just can't imagine. Where in God's word do you see that he gets angry over that? Well, I don't. Well, then he doesn't. And then there's this, oh, oh you can live in free. God's not toxic. God's not unpredictable. God's not blowing up unpredictably. This was one of the things that attracted first century pagans to the Christian faith. Because if you were a seaman in the first century and say, I don't know, Macedonia, Philippi, you might lose your whole fishing fleet for no other reason than Neptune got up on the wrong side of the bed. That was their understanding of the gods. Now they're seeing there's a God who is righteous and consistent. And when he gets angry, it's not out of control emotion that will harm you. What it is, is settled disposition Against all sin and rebellion, that will, if it continues, leave you less than He created you to be, and because He loves you, that makes him angry. That making sense? Some of you have grown up, maybe in a home with a parent who had an explosive temper, and every time you read stories of God's anger, you impute all that to them. And I'm, I'm praying for you today. Listen, God's not like earthly fathers. He's not he's even better than the good ones. He is. And underneath all this we're seeing is an amazing love expressed in Jesus' death as a substitute for your sin and a bodily resurrection that guarantees the truth of his saying to you that because I live, you live also. That is the measure of his love for you. And there is no exhausting it for the rest of eternity. Will you pray with me? Father, I pray that for those of us who may be tempted to walk around kind of like I did in my late 20s with an injury because we, for what any, any number of reasons, I don't know, I don't know what, the, what the motivation might be, but we, we're just walking on broken bones. Lord, may we exchange that today by truly turning away by giving our whole heart over to you, by learning through the power of your spirit to love you more than we love our sin and our rebellion, love you more than we love what people think about us, love you more than anything else. And Father, may we then find what we know because your word has told us we will find in exchange for that is a a love reciprocated that we can't possibly fathom, let alone replicate. And we thank you for that often expressed like a frustrated parent, but perfectly and in perfect righteousness. Father, I I really don't know what else to ask you this morning except to convert hearts and minds, ground them in your truth. And Father, may we turn to you and to you alone for that. And may we find healing. And may we walk in not the, the cheap sort of version of forgiveness that we too often see in our culture and even in the church, but in full pardon, bought by the blood of Jesus, even if it hurts, even if we have to suffer. May it be the pearl that we find in the field and be willing to sell everything we have in order to go get it. I make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.